When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. We are grateful for Brick Lane support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also, the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe, and then you'll never miss a video. In cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are. But thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of The Final Word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and The Final Word. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is The Final Word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and it is our fifth annual Christmas special. The podcast has been going longer than that, but this is the fifth year consecutively that we've elected to do a, a special kind of thing to end the year. Actually, we'll do our New Year's show next week. That'll formally cap the year, but... Um, thank you, Jeff, for that intro there. I've got Love Actually playing in the next room, I should say, with my family and Rachel, of course, is part of my family too. Let's not let's not downgrade her. She is the mother <laughs> to my child. Um, watching um, watching Love Actually, and I've snuck out in order to record uh, this piece of audio with you, which complements the interview that we did earlier today with none other than a white whale of sorts, Jeff, Mike Atherton. We've been wanting to get. Mike on for mm-hmm. probably as long as we've been doing interviews on the show. We nearly pulled it off when yep. visiting his cricket club a couple of years ago in Manchester for a live show, but the stars didn't quite align. And here we are with him on the Christmas special, and it went rather well. 
if I do say so myself. The only way in which Michael Atherton is not a white whale is that he did not single-handedly destroy the ship that we were sailing <laughs> on and kill us in the cold Atlantic Ocean. I'm sorry if you haven't read Moby Dick. Spoiler alert. Uh, 900 should, pages should later. put that off the top. <laughs> and about 200 years late. So if, if you haven't caught up on it by now, um, <laughs> look, there are some other twists in there that I haven't let you know about. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard work. Maybe Dick, it's it's uh, it's worth getting through, but it's a it, it's a fair old struggle. There was a book I read about nine years ago, which is kind of like a uh, I suppose you would call it a, a complimentary piece to Moby Dick. I think it's called the the Art of Baseball mm-hmm. or something like that. Basically about a shortstop who becomes aligned to this teacher who's obsessed with Moby Dick, and and so the story goes. But it never quite inspired right. me. To I did start Moby Dick many years ago, but even reading the piece that went with it all those years on, I never quite got to the point where I broke the back of it. I might have got like 200 pages in mm. and realised it was uh, it was too much for me. It's fundamentally not largely about whaling. That's, <laughs> no, that's maybe people's first, first mistake. <laughs> um, it's, not, it's not as discursive and tangential as... Uh, so I, I read a couple of years ago, I made myself read the whole book of Les Miserables by Victor Hugo and by God that guy needed an editor like <laughs> it's just it's it's just it's the most undisciplined thing he's like all right and now our characters are going into the sewers beneath Paris before we go any further I'll need to write you a 90 page history of the sewage system beneath Paris <laughs> and you're like no like, I don't need that's fine just go on with the story but you get the feeling that it was really just because he wanted to write about the sewage system um, ultimately the plot was just an excuse to to talk endlessly about what he wanted to talk about. You can take that much as assumed. Hey, right, so we've got this interview with Athos coming up. We're not going to do anything Ashes-related mm-hmm. today other than a couple of fleeting references no. uh, in that interview to uh, the series that's currently uh, being undertaken. That will continue with the daily shows. Well, that's from not what this Day. is about. It's no. not what it's about. No. This, this is about not. having a chat. It's Christmas. It is. It's Christmas, you know, it's Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, maybe when you're listening to this, or maybe it's months later and you're catching up on the back catalogue. But this is about sitting down at the end of the year and having a warm and interesting conversation with someone who you have to like. Yeah, it's tradition, right? Like you've, we've all got our different Christmas traditions that we mm-hmm. uh, that we ease into at this time of year. I didn't realise that my parents, because usually I, I get to my parents' place on the twenty fourth of December, um, just with the way our schedules mm-hmm. work out. With you know, usually we're covering a test until maybe the twenty second or something like that, or we've got other commitments on and whatever else it is. And they live a fair way out of Melbourne, so it's not always you know. Often I'll come on the twenty fourth and leave later on and visit them at other times during the summer. Yep, and I only put that back right in to note that uh, they've got their own little tradition now, independent of me, which is watching the, the carols in the domain, the Sydney carols. Mm-hmm. And I sampled about okay. quarter of an hour of it tonight with them and quickly concluded that, hmm, yes, carols in the domain, Sydney carols, Tory. Carols by candlelight, Melbourne carols, <laughs> Labour. The end. <laughs> if the Sunrise cast is, is presenting is the carols, Tories. Open and shut. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, did, was the cash cow involved at any point? <laughs> 
What a fucking degrading segment that is. <laughs> the cash cow. <laughs> Dear me. All those years wasted in politics um, watching. I used to have two television sets set up in, well, three at one point, very um, Elvis Presley of me, but for the most part, two television sets set up above my desk or above my computer screen at work in politics days. And one would be on the Today Show, one would be on Sunrise for, you know, whatever it is, three hours per day for about six years of my life. I'm not getting those years back. Wow. I'm not getting those hours back. <laughs> It's a lot of cash cow. <laughs> uh, wow. So, okay. So was it was it Dominic Perrottet on the trumpet and uh, you know Alan Jones on on the on the marimba. Like, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Have we stayed the course? That that AJ, as they call him in Sydney, would have been would have been involved, but no, mm. not not in my um, brief sampling of it. Before I told my parents exactly that, we're not going to sit down for any more of this shit. We're watching Love Actually. We're watching some proper middle class television. Uh, we're going to tune into a, mm-hmm. an ensemble cast where they all earn a shitload of money. They had a very lovely time, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Right. So, Jeff, uh, what do we need to do before we get to our interview? We need to talk about our live shows briefly. You might have heard on Storytime, which we rather rather unusually popped out on Wednesday, which is a history show. If you're listening to this for the first time, because Mike Atherton is our guest, you will learn that we make daily shows during big test series. We make uh, a history show each weekend called Storytime, which revolves around uh, the numbers of the game, which relates to the patrons that help fund the show. It's all, all rather lovely. That when mm-hmm. On that Wednesday show, which is usually on a Saturday, we told you that we're not doing a Sydney <laughs> live show, but we are doing the cricket game in Sydney on the 25th. 5th or 26th of January, Jeff, you're leading Sixth, the final word, 26th, 26th of January, yeah. you're leading the final word 11. So if you want to be part of what we're doing in Sydney with the final word, that'll be the avenue for that. Jeff, will talk more about that on next week's weekly show. And we will, for the time being, crack on with Melbourne. We've got a venue, a guest, Chris Rogers, a venue, the Seafarers uh, in, Mission to Seafarers in Melbourne. And we've been selling tickets for that for a while. So we're going to try and honour that. If it becomes impossible, we'll pull the pin and we'll refund the tickets. But we think at this stage it's probably fine, uh, but of course we'll we'll do what's um, do what's sensible and we'll do what's safe, pending information as it comes to hand. So that's the short, long and short of the live show situation. Adelaide was great last week, so we would love to do it. Uh, Steve Finn was a tremendous guest, and Chris Rogers will be as well. So we're really hopeful Melbourne comes off, and we're really sad that Sydney hasn't. But uh, such are the times that we live in. These are the times that we live in. Uh, So we're going to get to the interview as soon as possible. Before we do that, we have to do one thing. We have to play a little game. The game is called Nerd Pledge. Adam foreshadowed it just now. Uh, This is how it works. People on Patreon fund the show. They send us contributions. And those contributions are not regular numbers, but they're very specific numbers. They relate to cricket in some way, and we have to work out what it means. The number for this week is from... Benjamin, it's $2.32. So 232 is our sequence of digits. Benjamin has no vowels in his name. It's just Benjamin. Uh, like imagine, Adam, what Benjamin will be like when he's, when he's talking to his grandchildren saying, you think you have it tough. My parents couldn't afford vowels when they put my name <laughs> on the birth certificate. <laughs> they didn't have enough money. They couldn't give baby John Burgess any money for vowels. <laughs> it reminds me of when, remember when uh, Australia played Croatia in that World Cup game in 2006 mm. where, uh, where Mark Schwarzer let... A, uh, no, sorry, it was... Um, uh, it was Spider Kalich, wasn't it? They, they dropped Schwarzer for that game and, and the big yes. spider came in. Uh, and early on in the mm-hmm. game, he, he let a goal through from Serna, S-R-N-A, the Croatian striker. I remember mm-hmm. being in a pub in Fitzroy and someone yelling out, can I buy a vowel? <laughs> 
<laughs> I thought at the time that was quite funny. I still do, as it turns out, because it stuck with me 15 years on. <laughs> I remember I remember that goal going through. It was it was, it was was a real heart drop moment, and then somehow they, they came back and levelled up. That was the game where Josip Simonic got three yellow cards before yes. he got sent off because the referee got, got confused and carded him three times. It's the one thing that – it's the one – it's well, one of the only things that English fans, as I've learnt living over there, remember about Australia's 2006 World Cup campaign is that the Croatian player had three yellow cards. Uh, I can't remember the name mm. of, of the referee now, but he was an English bloke. It was an English Pol, ref. I think it was Graham Pol, Pol. Graham Pohl. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, we, we, we yep. both got it somewhere deep within our memory. Yep. Um, I, remember, um, uh, I remember walking back down uh, Brunswick Street and my – girlfriend at the time was a breakfast radio producer and she was producing you know mm. obviously they were celebrating the win you know the soccer is getting through the late Harry Kuehl equaliser which was enough to send Australia through and I was there with my best <laughs> mate and she goes can you guys jump on you've been up all night at the pub rah, rah, rah. so he jumped on and spoke to Wilbur Wilde who was hosting the show that day and it's a good like, <laughs> of course you know ha- having had a skinful having been up all night Russell Gilbert was busy <laughs> <laughs> jumping on the phone to Wilbur Wilde to tell him all about it uh, right, so where are we? Two thirty-two. Benjamin, no vows. Russell, <laughs> Russell Gilbert was busy at the cricket, standing on that platform, waiting for a catch. Remember when they had that yes. initiative in the Big Bash? Yes. We'll put celebrities on a platform and hope to God somehow that the ball gets hit to them, and then they have to try to catch it. I remember the the, the, fir- the first celebrity they popped up there. This was the twenty thirteen Big Bash. I remember that much. And the first celebrity they put up there was was Dipper. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> As, as, as Robert Dippier once said, I'm born to play grand finals. I'm not sure if he was born to stand on a platform in the southern stand um, <laughs> to, to catch balls that may never come. <laughs> they could have used him better. They could have used him as the boundary rider, his true calling. <laughs> Uh, well, it, he just needed someone to get up there and break a couple of his ribs, and then he would have taken one. <laughs> just, he just wasn't motivated enough first. So, imagine, imagine for so our, imagine t- our England listeners who've tuned in to hear a conversation with Athers, and we're down the wormhole on the 2006 Australian Socceroos World Cup campaign and the trials and tribulations of Robert Dippiedomenico standing on a platform. <laughs> and the 1989 AFL Grand Final, VFL Grand Final, as it was. Um, yeah, apologies in advance. If you, you've probably just skipped forward to the interview, and fair enough. But let's do Benjamin's number at two thirty-two. I mean, there are there are some standout numbers that we've talked about plenty of times. Don Bradman making two hundred and thirty-two at the Oval, Stan McCabe at Trent Bridge. So we won't go through those again unless Benjamin tells us that that's, that's what he wants in, in future weeks. So those are the two great Ashes 232s. Mm-hmm. So I, I decided to look at batting innings today. But there's this Nottingham link there because Stan McCabe makes his yep. in Nottingham at Trent Bridge. And then Viv Richards also makes 232 uh, at Trent Bridge. And I, was, I spent – I invested a good half hour um, the other day, Adam, watching Viv Richards 208 at the MCG because I was making a reference in an article to uh, Viv Richards' name being taken down from the Percy Beams bar and Alistair Cook's 242 going up there after the last Ashes tour. And I thought, I should watch that innings again. And by God, it's a great innings. Uh, he's, mm. I think Malcolm Marshall is out there batting with him at eight before Rich, um, Viv's even got to 100. Like he's on 80-something when he's batting with the number eight and he gets to 208 from there. So, you know, I had Viv Richards double hundreds on the brain, uh, but he, he made one at Trent Bridge. Patsy Hendren, uh, one of the great English bats, made one at Trent Bridge as well for Middlesex. And David Hussey, 
made one at Trent Bridge, not out in 2005 when he was playing for Notts. So there are lots of 232s Mm. in Nottingham. I don't know what it is about Nottingham that makes 232 happen. But then if you start linking up other things, David Hussey's got this 232. Mike Hussey also made a 232 in county cricket four years earlier when he was opening for Northants, which is not that far away from Nottingham, you know, a stone's throw really in that sort of middle section of the country. Mm-hmm. So two in the family. We, we, we spoke on Storytime about the Armanaths, Lala and Mahinda Armanath, both taking one for 31 in test cricket. Mark Hussey and David Hussey both made 232s. We were also talking about enjoying the names of some of the teams in Sri Lanka, but I noticed that the most recent 232 was in Pakistan by Saad Ali, who made one for United Bank Limited versus Pakistan Television. What a name for a team. <laughs> we took on the might of Pakistan Television. I don't know if it was all TV stars, but it was a first-class game. So there's that for an option. And then there's a stat. This is a, a transitory stat, perhaps. And These are interesting because, you know, this may not last forever. It's like a sandcastle. It could be washed away. But a favourite of the show, Ravindra Jadeja, the Indian all-rounder, made 232 as a a young buck back in 2008 playing for Saurashtra in Indian first-class cricket. Picked up six wickets in the game as well. Now, you may enjoy this, Adam, because we like the work of both of these players on the show. Jadeja makes 232 not out. Chiteshwa Pajara, 302 not out. So they come together with the score. They're four down for 100 when Jadeja comes in. And then over the next 117 overs, they add 520 runs unbeaten (laughs) and walk in declared on 620. Um, so, and, and this is the transitory bit. Jadeja has that 232. How many test wickets does he have right now? Oh, beautiful. 232. Ah, oh, very nicely done, Jeff. Beautifully stitched together. And, um, yeah, going back to the start of your answer, the McCabe 232, I'm pretty sure that's the innings that Bradman described as the best he ever saw. Is that right, Jeff? I yeah. have a recollection of that being... I think he said, I, I think he said, I wish I could have played an innings. I wish I could play an innings like that. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. Christian Ryan, I mean, quite a while ago now when he was writing for Crick Info, wrote a piece going back and charting the 232. It must have been on one of the anniversaries of it, which I can Mm. recommend. I remember reading that when uh, going back and researching for the sculptures piece I wrote a long time ago now. Of course, there's that sculpture of Stan McCabe at the the SCG. So um, that stands in the memory, Mm. but very nicely done. Thank you, Benjamin, for being part of what we do. Patreon.com forward slash the final word, as as Jeff said before, that helps us continue making the show a couple of times a week or seven days a week as it is at the moment and um, and prepare interviews as you're about to hopefully uh, enjoy over the next hour or so. Jeff, it also means that Benjamin wins the Brick Lane Slab. And by that, I mean Benjamin has the chance to gift or, or, or himself or somebody else in Australia a slab of Brick Lane beer. Uh, Brick Lane, who are great supporters of what we do here on The Final Word. And they are, well, they are award-winning beers and they're in the hunt for more awards at the moment. Yes, they won a gold medal at the World Beer Awards for the One Love Pale Ale, which uh, a lot of people are enjoying over the summer. They're in the running for some more awards at the moment. Uh, You can get discounts off their stuff too. I don't think you can get it in the UK, but if you're in Australia, you go to Brick Lane Brewing 
facebook.com and put in Marsh182 in tribute to Sean Marsh's 182 at Hobart and you get 15% off. Fairly handy. Uh, so check them out. Uh, if you don't like drinking, they have low alcohol options as well. I'd love you to vote for them too. So this is this Hottest 100 competition they're in at the moment with the One Love. I think the Sidewinder's mm. in there too. If you're listening to this and you're enjoying what Brick Lane do with us, vote for them in this Hottest 100 competition they've entered at the moment. Uh, the details are on their website, also on their social media platforms, also therefore in our show notes. So take a look, bricklanebrewing.com. We love them uh, and hopefully they love us too. Indeed. All right, quick breather. And then we're into Michael Atherton's interview. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. Jeff, it has been a gigantic month in English cricket, uh, and I don't just mean the Ashes that have started in Australia. What I'm really talking about is the Azim Rafiq uh, inquiry, parliamentary inquiry, uh, and all that flowed from that. And Wisdom Cricket Monthly were instrumental in telling that story last year, not least Taha Hashim, who joined the show uh, a little while ago, uh, along with the Ragani, probably a month ago with us. And they've had the chance, and the, good, the great thing about a magazine is you can step back from the, I guess, the, the churn of the daily media cycle and really devote a number of pages to telling a story in great depth. And that is precisely what they've done to, to lead off issue 51 of the mag. I mean, the cover is all about this. It says here, giving voice to the voiceless Azim Rafiq, effectively a special around what happened there. There's plenty more in it as well, but I like this, that they're not just thrown straight into the ashes with their cover. They're like, no, 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 no. Something quite significant happened last month and we, uh, we're we going to do it justice in the next edition of the magazine and some fantastic long-form writing that goes right to the heart of a, a story that is going nowhere fast, frankly. This is what Wisdom Cricket Monthly can do. They've got the space, they've got the time and they're willing to apply both. So uh, we think it's the best cricket magazine in the world. We're unbiased in reaching that conclusion uh, just just because we talk about it on the show. But it's a magazine that you can get very, very cheaply because you can get the digital versions delivered to your tablet or, you know, other electronic device uh, and you can get it for 10 quid for a six-month subscription it's about 15 australian dollars through the link that is in the show notes for this show if you go and click that link then you can get that subscription for uh, basically the price of a couple of cups of coffee it's a very attainable way to get more involved with cricket beyond the day-to-day yeah, that's right. And look, I, again, kind of backing over what I said before to an extent, but it requires a magazine or a publication like Wisdom Cricket Monthly to to really get to the core of stories like this. So a 12-page special feature in this edition alone, and a lot of it comes back to what Taha wrote then, and a lot of it refers to uh, the conversations he's had since that inquiry from the uh, Digital Culture Media Sport Committee uh, back in November before we kind of turned our attention to the ashes. Of course, there's loads on the ashes as well. Uh, Dava Alan spoke to the uh, editor-in-chief of the magazine, Phil Walker, about trying to block out the noise and nail down the number three position, which, of course, he's done a pretty 
decent job of so far at Brisbane and at Adelaide. Uh, James Wallace, who's a fabulous writer, uh, looks back at the painful recent history of English spinners in Australia. Uh, I, I suppose James would have been into a file that before the uh, before the Jack Leach uh, the, before the Jack Leach performance at Brisbane. So uh, they're on the money with uh, commissioning that piece. Greg Chappell does a long interview with John Stern, and there's a great line in there about why he'd rather spend more time with David Warner than other squeaky clean figures in the game. But also, I suppose, just a chance for Greg to talk about his status in the game. I think he's 74 years of age now. He's just written what will probably be his last book. He's written a number of books over the years, but along with Daniel Bredig, um, he wrote a, a great book earlier this year that's just coming out at the moment. So that is what the focus of the interview is. Joe Harmon's written a great piece too about concussion in cricket. The Will Pekofsky uh, story is impossible to avoid in all of that uh, and just mindful of how the game needs to look after players in the long term and Kate Cross is in there as well saying she's never felt more comfortable uh, since inheriting I suppose you'd call it the Liam Plunkett role in the 50 over team which she does such a fine job of at the moment then you jump to the columnists there's Lawrence Booth uh, asking just about kind of I suppose the longevity of Owen Morgan and the sustainability of Morgan's position as captain. There's also a long into view with Miss Bale Hark, uh, and then there's the stable of columnist Adams in there writing about Tim Payne, Lawrence Booth, about Owen Morgan and whether he's still in the best team, uh, Andrew Miller about Michael Vaughan and his position in English cricket and uh, Neil Manthorpe's in there as well talking about A.B. de Villiers and whether his career was unfulfilled in a way. So uh, lots of big issues, lots of interesting topics uh, and lots of fun stuff as well in WCM. Right, so bit.ly forward slash WCMTFW. It's all there in the show notes. $15 or 10 quid for six editions. Pick it up on your tablet. Uh, it couldn't be a better investment if you love wonderful cricket writing. Wisdom Cricket Monthly, the best cricket magazine in the world. Hi, I'm Brian Roddle. You're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. It is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And it being Christmas, uh, it's our obligation to bring you a a long-form interview as we have the last few years with Jim Maxwell, Harsha Bogley, Vic Marks, Mel Jones. And today it's someone we've wanted to get on the show for a long time and we're so glad that it's worked out in the way that it has with Mike Atherton in Melbourne for the Boxing Day Test Match. As is often the case when England come to Melbourne for Boxing Day, it isn't going particularly well on the field, but Mike has been a wonderful player and broadcaster and narrator of the game. It's great to have him back in Australia and wonderful having him join us today on The Final Word. Hi, Mike. Hi, good to be here. Uh, At this to start, there's been some fairly significant broadcasting news overnight, which I thought I might just get your initial perspective on with David Lloyd Bumble, who's, of course, has been on our show before for a similar interview to this and we've all worked with in in different ways, deciding to put a pin in his broadcasting career, his illustrious broadcasting career. But your relationship with him goes back a lot further than that, back to when you were a boy, really. Just wanted to get your your first impression on on the idea that someone that's been a massive part of your life professionally uh, won't be uh, interested to the future at Sky Cricket. Well, I'm very sad about that. Obviously, I've known him all my life, as you say. Uh, I'm a Lancastrian. Bumble's a Lancastrian. He was part of that great Lancashire team in the 70s that I first started to follow, whose names I can uh, still recall very easily. Lloyd, Wood, Hayes, Pilling, Lloyd, <laughs> uh, Simmons, Hughes, Engineer, Lever, Lee, Shuttleworth. There you go. That's the first <laughs> Lancashire team that I remember of which Bumble was a great part of it. And then I I played with his lad, Graham, all the way through Lancashire Schoolboys. And although mostly it was Graham's granddad, i.e. David's dad, 
who would ferry uh, Graham around to games. I obviously got to know Bumble through my teenage years uh, playing with Graham and then played for Lancashire under him as coach, captained England with Bumble as coach. And I've had the great honour of working with him for the last, well, dozen years or so on Sky. Uh, so a great friend, I, I can recall one particular moment that it didn't cement the friendship but I knew uh, what the friendship meant when I was having a particularly gruesome time as England captain in 1994 and I took myself off to the Lake District found a pub in Cartmel shut myself away didn't tell anybody about it and there was a knock on the door a day later and there he was he'd driven up to the lakes just to kind of check up on me and see how I was um, and that's the kind of bloke he is really I, I can honestly say there's not been a moment that I've spent with Bumble where my mood has not been lifted by his presence. He is one of those people that just make you feel better for being around him. He's got the the gift of, of comic timing. He is hilarious. Uh, I mean, it's just natural. He doesn't, people who often try too hard to be funny are not funny. Bumble doesn't have to try too hard. He's just got the comic gift. Um, he's great company. I mean, he's 74 now, but he really has got the demeanor uh, of a man much younger, 20 years younger. I think because he surrounded himself by younger people in his broadcasting career, that has kept him young. He, he has been great company, uh, been a great friend to all of us. I, I think he's been one of the great broadcasting voices, actually. Uh, uh, you know, that kind of combination of accent, wonderful, uh, rich Accrington accent, that natural comic sense of timing that I mentioned and a deep love and knowledge of the game. He's, he's done everything in the game, really, from playing, umpiring, broadcasting, you name it. Um, I think that combination has given him a great sense of the game. So he, he's been one of the great voices of it. You're quite a phlegmatic character in terms of not sort of seemingly getting too washed up in, in the emotions of the day-to-day, -day, but that, that'll be quite a big thing for you, won't it, next year when you're working in the UK and someone who's been such a big presence in your life uh, won't be there? Yes, I, I mean, there's, there's always a turnover to some degree, isn't there? Sky uh, have um, lost or moved on from Ian Botham, David Gower, Michael Holding last summer decided to, to step away and now Bumble. So there's there's always that sense of turnover and <laughs> myself and NASA are probably the senior voices now, so we'll be the, the next one's uh, next cab off the rank, if you, if you like. But, you know, there, there, are, there are good people remaining there and it will still be great fun. But, you know, Bumble has been a, a central part of that broadcast team for the last decade or more. Um, we'll, be, we'll be badly missed, yeah. So David's... Part of your childhood, you're you're born in a place called Failsworth, which is not a great omen for a uh, for a future cricketer. But what what, what did the, what what did the early years of your life look like for you? Um, well, I I know that you two guys have both been to to Woodhouse's Cricket Club because you did a an evening from there during one of the Manchester Tests a few years ago, and that's really where a lot of my childhood was spent. So Woodhouse's is a little village between. Manchester and Oldham, so on the north side of town, not the most salubrious side of town compared to the south. Failsworth is about half a mile away from there, but really I spent most of my time at Woodhouses either playing cricket at the cricket club, golf at the golf club across the road. That's where my grandparents lived, or at least one set of grandparents, the other set lived in Failsworth. So I kind of, 
you could cross the fields at the back of the back of the cricket club to get to my house and that's really where I spent most most of my time so you you'll know it you've been there it's you know pretty humble little cricket club but a good good sense of spirit and soul good people there that I'm still in touch with uh, my dad played for years there my brother played there so the family's had a long long association uh, association with it and I spent some time looking up your school's record because, of course, that's these are the kind of things we do. <laughs> masses of runs, masses of wickets. Did it feel like it came easily to you at that point or, or do you still have the same anxieties about playing at that sort of age as, as you do as you go up the ranks? Um, I, I was always ahead of my time. So I, I went to a primary school called Briscoe Lane, which was a state primary school in, a, in an area called Newton Heath, which... I don't know. Maybe known to viewers as, as the as the birthplace of Manchester United. That's that's kind of what it's mainly known for. But at that time, state primary schools still had competitive cricket. We had a playing field. I would I would say that would be a, a rarity now that cricket you know is, wouldn't wouldn't be played in state primary schools to the extent that we played it. So got lucky there. Had one of the most fortunate things that happened to me really I think everybody in their life can look back at at, at, at fortunate moments I, I came into contact with a teacher called Ted Parrott at Briscoe Lane he, he was my form teacher for a couple of years and he obviously just recognized something in me whatever it was decided to uh, out of the goodness of his heart without charging anything give me extra lessons on a Monday night at school in order to try and get me into Manchester Grammar School which was not particularly a school that Briscoe Lane sent many people to, sent the odd person to, but not many. So Ted gave me a bit of extra tuition. I went and sat the entrance exam, scraped in, I think, by the skin of my teeth, certainly not starring in the in the entrance exam, and ended up going to MGS, which, you know, is a great a great school. It's a kind of academic grammar school, but with, you know, lots of lots of opportunities outside of that of which cricket was one and and then carried on all the way through really playing Manchester schoolboys Lancashire schoolboys always two or three years ahead of my time or ahead of my age group um, so found that you know I was pretty good pretty good for my age really sounds like that kind of familiar tale that you you read about these as and Malcolm Gladwell for example wrote extensively about this where if at a pivotal time you get a chance to play upgrades and get a lot of attention in those formative years, you might call them, uh, that you end up being a, a step ahead of your peer group. Is, is that how it kind of was with you, that you were getting extra tuition, opportunities at Manchester Grammar, which meant by the time you're getting to that 16, 17, 18 part of your life, you're, you're kind of maybe sort of head and shoulders above the guys you were, you were with before that time? Yeah, I don't know about head and shoulders. We had, um, we had a lot of very good players. So the Lancashire schoolboy team that I played with all the way through by the time we got to the under 19s which was called the Lancashire Federation side I think six or seven of us signed for Lancashire in that final year so the likes of Graham Lloyd Dexter Fitton Ian Austin probably names that your your viewers mm. might not necessarily know but Warren Hegg Peter Martin mm. there are about six or seven of us Nick Speak we all signed at the same time so was quite fortunate to have a good peer group and at Manchester Grammar School as well. In my form was Mark Crawley, who went on to play first-class cricket, Gary Yates, who went on to play for Lancashire. So I think a combination of having quite a highly competitive peer group 
but then playing ahead of my time so I was like I think for England under 19s I played at 16 so for two or three years ahead of my age group so that combination I think probably meant that by the time I started playing first class cricket um, I was ready to go I, I got lucky again actually I mean I, I genuinely think I can look back and at lots of moments of just good fortune really Peter Lever was the Lancashire coach when I signed and he was just about to finish actually with Jack Bond Peter Lever was a great kind of fast bowler for, for Lancashire and England came on the Ashes tour of 70-71 with Raymond Illingworth and England won the Ashes and he uh, for a couple of years decided to get a group of fast bowlers together not contracted players just young lads 18-19 and try and develop them into a, a cohort of, of fast bowlers for, for the club. And for a couple of winters, I was put through the grinder in these nets. He had the bowlers bowling off 16 or 17 yards, no restrictions on bouncers. It was ferocious. And a couple of Lancashire batsmen who were contracted at that time came in, Graham Fowler and Neil Fairbrother, and promptly threw down their bats and said, I'm not, we're not batting against this lot. So it was really ferocious. And, and I think when you're stepping up, the biggest thing when you step from grade to grade, whether you go from schoolboy cricket to second 11 cricket to first 11 cricket to test cricket, the biggest difference is the pace of the game. And I got lucky that Peter Lever for a couple of years, just before I played first class cricket, got these boys together, put me through the grinder and one or two other batsmen. And so by the time I played first class cricket, even though I was playing against you know, Marshall, Walsh, all these guys, it wasn't something that I found outlandish. I, I'd faced people equally as quick in the indoor school at Lancashire for a couple of years, so I was ready to go. Coming off 16 yards probably did help boost the pace a bit. So coming into Manchester Grammar and then you, you end up going to Cambridge, did that sense of coming into it from outside stay with you, I guess, because you're not part of the production line of, of wealthy, privileged kids who are always going to end up at Oxford or Cambridge, but you've come into it thanks to an intervention, basically. Um, a little bit, yeah. So when I went from Briscoe Lane to Manchester Grammar School, the kind of people that I would be knocking around with at home, you then move away from that, not because you want to move away from it, just because naturally you're going to another school that's an hour away from where you live. So you, you, there's that slight sense of dislocation. Uh, it's one of the unfortunate effects of, of the private school system that we have in England. Mm. But then it's funny because, so I, I then went to Cambridge, I went to college called Downing College, Cambridge didn't know really anybody there so and I think initially as a northern grammar school boy you feel a slight sense of being an outsider but equally then when I went back to the Lancashire dressing room of course I was coming back as a, as a kind of Cambridge educated toff or, or <laughs> yeah. you know kind of slightly seen so in, in some quarters so wherever I went I kind of had that sense of being somewhat on the outside um, which is you know I, I kind of I think it it develops a self-sufficiency there in you, which is no bad thing if you want to be a professional batsman, because at the end of the day, 
uh, you're on your own. If you're an opening batsman in test cricket, you're on your own in a pretty tough environment and you've got to kind of sort yourself out. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to ask about because there, there's this uh, there's this thing on the record of you being given this nickname of, of FEC, which <laughs> some people said stood for future England captain, but others said stood for uh, effing educated something else. Uh, so it, it is interesting that you get pushed to the outside in both senses. You know, when like you say, when you come back, you're a toff, but in in those circles, you're a you're a country kid who's who's something else. You're a northerner. You're you're on the outside in both senses. Yeah, I definitely felt that. Which is not to say for one moment that uh, I was not well looked after wherever I went. I mean, when I went into the Langshire dressing room as a, as an 18 year old, it was fantastic. I mean, it was quite a tough dressing room, as masculine kind of dressing rooms can be or could be I think they've probably softened a bit now and it was a tough environment and you had to stand on your own two feet and you had to prove your worth but once you did it was a it was a a fantastic uh, dressing room to be in I, I genuinely would say that the Lancashire dressing room that I played in for a dozen years or 13 years whatever it was made up some of the happiest days of my professional career that two distinct sides really the one that I came into that had some quite established players like uh, Allert and Fowler, Gian Mendes, David Hughes, Jack Simmons, very established older players and then the one that Flat Jack. my contemporaries, yeah Flat Jack my, my contemporaries then we created another team Fairbrother, Peter Martin, Warren Haig Jason Gallion, John Crawley, these guys so two distinct teams but both fabulous teams and, and very happy times a bit of a theme of our interviews with former players is they often remember so fondly the run of form that got them picked for the country for the first time. And I suppose the, the more generous interpretation of the FEC nickname meant you were probably on the path to the England team a fraction earlier than, than some of your colleagues and peers, but uh, making a debut at age 21 in a pretty chaotic environment, I suppose, with Australia rolling through England unexpectedly in 1989. But before you actually arrive in the England dressing room, that do you remember much about the run that got you there and, the, and some of the standout performances? Well, not really, because again, it was just a stroke of, of good fortune. It sounds like my life has been a series of, of good fortunes. But again, it was because what happened was in the, in the middle of that series in 1989, the Rebel Tour uh, got announced and uh, and that's how I got my gig really right. so so the old Trafford test of that series which is when I think Australia regained the mm. ashes mm. I was called in to be 12th man and I wasn't like the genuine 12th man at this point I wasn't the next man in the side but I was just a young Lancashire player who happened to be around and they thought we'll give him some experience in the dressing room and fielding or whatever so I, I was kind of called up to do some 12th man duties in that game. And the Lancashire Pavilion there is very hierarchical. You had a first team dressing room, the captain's room, a second 11 dressing room. And then right at the back near the loos was this kind of little outhouse where the young kids changed, of which I was one. So I dumped my stuff in there for this test match in 1989. 
And blow me down, that's where all the kind of negotiations for the Rebel Tour were taking place. <laughs> so I was like sat there, this young kid just gobsmacked and overawed at being involved in the ashes. And one by one, all these players were coming trooping in to negotiate <laughs> negotiate their departure for this Rebel Tour. And it was announced shortly afterwards. So, so basically, the, the England team was gutted at this point. And... With the ashes gone and a, just a skeletal team remaining, they decided to plump for for some young kids, of which I was one. I can't I can't think I'd had a magnificent run of scores. In fact, I know I hadn't because Neil Fairbrother, who was my colleague at Lancashire, had had a much better run of scores. Right. But he was a bit older. He'd been tried and tested a little bit. I think he'd played a couple of test matches by this point. They basically were just looking for a young and promising kid to, to throw in and I happened to be the one. I mean, I was so green and, you know, when I said I was ready to go in first-class cricket, that is true, but I, I really had so much to learn. I can remember in that first game, very first day, actually, we, we, Australia were 301 for none at the end of my first day <laughs> in test cricket, which was a pointer, I think, as to how the Ashes were destined to go in my career. But that game, I can remember facing Trevor Hones, who would bowl leg spin, obviously, for Australia. And he bowled me a flipper in that match. I got 47 in the second innings, and he bowled me a flipper. And I was so naive, I didn't know what a flipper was. I just saw this thing come kind of quite strangely out of the hand and a bit different in flight. And I thought, I didn't really know what it was. Um, and that was just a, you know, a sense of, of how naive and, and lacking in cricket knowledge and experience I was really so it was a pretty steep learning curve I had to learn about test cricket on the job what did you make of that ethically that so many players were willing to sign up to a rebel tour and that it seems you know these days it's largely been forgotten there are lots of players who did that who uh, who've been reinstalled in the England system in a range of ways even though it was it was a very powerful decision to be made and not in a good way at the time um yeah i can't say though at 21 or whatever i was 2021 that that was at the forefront of my mind in a way that perhaps it would be now as a writer or a broadcaster or somebody who comments on the game at that stage you know i was just focused on playing and scoring runs and trying to do well and Proving myself, uh, and it was a, it was just over there. I didn't, you know, it was it, in the end. It had a big impact upon me because it allowed me my my entrance into the test side, and I got my my debut because of it. Mm. But it wasn't something that particularly I thought about in that in the way that I would think about it now. Um, you, you know, obviously now it would be a you'd, you'd have lots to say on it as somebody who broadcasts and commentates, but but just not then. It was a clearly I, I was never a young player who was asked to go on the tour. Nobody at Lancashire was, although Philip De Freitas might have been asked. I'm not sure. So it wasn't something that was very immediate to me, other, other than it had a big impact. So out of '89, uh, you get the opportunity to pretty quickly become a, a senior player in the England team. Uh, you're betting alongside Graham Gooch, having a, a quite remarkable final portion of his career uh, as you get to sort of stand alongside him in some fairly hefty days with him at the batting crease. How important was that to your development before you become captain, getting to watch him do his thing and learn from someone as great as him? Well, that's really how I, I learned to 
about test match batting this was the era of course pre-coaches really we, we did have a, a coach by this stage Mickey Stewart was was the first full-time England manager come coach but they weren't the the amount of backroom staff that teams have have now basically if we went on tour we'd have a manager a coach a physio and a scorer that was it still at that stage um, so you, you you really learn through part osmosis just talking to senior players and in my case opening with Gooch and standing 22 yards away as he played now again I got so lucky because he was about 36 at this point when I got into the side and had a proper run at it from 1990 and I reckon for about four years Graham Gooch probably averaged about 70 in that time he had a kind of Indian summer to his test career because actually at that point he was probably only averaging 36, 37 himself although he was regarded as an absolute top notcher in the English game probably his test record didn't quite reflect that and then suddenly for four years he just piled on a mountain of runs I mean famously the 3-3-3 at Lords against India but he got 100 in that second innings of that game he was just in incredible form for about four years and he lifted his lifted his average way up into the 40s and it wasn't just the batting it, it was the whole thing really at a, again at a time when although we were pretty fit fitness wasn't as important or as central to cricket as it is now but Gooch was a, a step ahead he, he was somebody who really trained hard prepared himself to the nth degree um, was unbelievably committed as England captain so that was a, a very important three or four year period where I learned really from a, a guy who was playing as well as anybody in the world at that point he may have been I can't remember whether he was the number one ranked player for any any stage of that but if he wasn't he, he may well have been you know there wasn't anybody really scoring a greater number of runs or better runs than him in that period so it was a wonderful education to have to be 22 yards away from him when you came back in sort of a year after 89 you had a good run you made your first 100 a big 150 score against New Zealand made 100 against India and then went to Australia where it was a tough tour but it seemed like that was the development of you as a, a bloody minded player who would not get out you made the 100 in Sydney, the 87 in Adelaide, and there the two draws seems notable that that's where those scores came. Did you want to play that way or come, sort of become that sort of player or was it was it required of you more than the way you wanted to do it? Not really. I mean, that was a tough tour, that Australia tour of 1991. I'd never been... Well, I had been to Australia. I'd been on the, on the Youth World Cup in 1988, the inaugural Under-19 World Cup, but that was mainly played in you know country south australia places like renmark and berry and mildura so i had no experience really of first class cricket in australia which i have to say then maybe still is the case i'm not sure then was of a higher standard than english county cricket for sure so again it was a steep learning curve in terms of conditions quality of cricket and i, I was in pretty bad form at the start of that tour and it was just the reason I think I was so slow in that 100 at Sydney. I was actually a bit quicker, no doubt, in Adelaide in the second innings because we were having a bit of a dart at quite a big run chase, I think. But that Sydney innings was really just me finding a way to get out of a 
pretty bad trough of poor form and just finding a way to score some ugly runs. They were pretty ugly, those runs, I have to say, and it was a pretty slow innings. But it, it kind of kept me in the team, and I think that those people who go on to have a significantly long test career, that's really the key to it. You find ways of staying in the team when your form doesn't necessarily want it, uh, warrant it. You find ways of getting ugly 40s, 50s, 60s, which gives you another opportunity, and then eventually... Uh, you know you, you, that 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 form returns. So it wasn't a deliberate positioning of myself as some kind of grinder. It was just really a consequence of being in pretty terrible form at the start of the tour, a good bowling attack that we were playing against, and a steep learning curve. You know, I was only 22 at this point, first full England tour, first tour of Australia, trying to come to terms with it all really. And I suppose there are some similarities four years on from your test taboo in 1993 in that England is somewhat discombobulated towards the end of the series, getting beaten heavily, and they, they put out the call to you to become the captain of your country at age 25 ahead of the, the fourth test match, I think it was. Uh, and there you are leading this team into inevitable defeat somewhat, but given the chance so early, I suppose, realising that FEC moniker, and here you were. I mean, your impressions then as a, a pretty young man, I mean, I think of it now, like... Can, I mean, have you thought in more recent years, boy, at 25, they were asking me to do that job? It's quite the mission, especially when you're in the middle of an Ashes series, which is going the wrong way. Yeah, 93, a bit like 89, was a was a desperate Ashes series for England. A little bit like four years before, we used a whole heap of players, probably 20 players or more. Uh, the Ashes were lost by the Headingley Test match, which is when Graham Gooch stepped down and Ted Dexter was chairman of selectors yeah. then. He rang me up and said, you know, do you want to do the job? And it, I, I did think it was, I was very young. I mean, I was 25, I'd probably played 20 odd tests. So I played a few test matches uh, and I was reasonably established by this stage. But again, really the Lord's test, the second test match of that series, I felt I was on the verge of, of being dropped. And I managed to get some runs, 80 and 99 in that game. And that then gave me a, a second win. But had I not got runs in that game, I think I'd have been out of the side, as a few others were. So it was a very precarious existence. There were no central contracts then. You were just paid or picked on a game-by-game -game basis. There was much more flux and uncertainty than there is uh, around an England side now when basically, you know, they're choosing from a bunch of centrally contracted players. So it was a different time when Ted Dexter rang me. I didn't really think twice about it because at this stage I'd had a back operation. I, I was basically had been told by the surgeon that I wasn't going to have a long career. I wasn't going to be somebody who's playing mid-30s, late-30s and into my 40s. I kind of knew that this would be my chance really that I wasn't going to be playing much beyond early 30s so I, I felt I had to take it ideally it would have come three or four years later I think when I was just more experienced when I had a bit more knowledge um, I was very green very young and in some ways I look back and think well given that you know did a did a reasonable job and did the job as well as I could and and showed some toughness along the way. But I also look back and think, my God, I just really didn't know anything. But that's that, in a way, is the curse of sport, that by the time you gain wisdom and knowledge, 
you are too old to play. <laughs> you know, by the time by the time you're mid thirties and you realise what it's all about, and you finally get an understanding of batting, people, the game, you're finished. Uh, and that's that's in some ways the curse of sport. So cricket captains it's a tough old job because as we've seen with Joe Root who again got it pretty young I think he was about the same age as me you are learning when you're when you're a young man and when you're still developing yourself developing your own character and your own personality and and really just growing up so yeah tough did you get a chance when making the Spinwash documentary, which was about the 94 tour of India? 94, right? Not 93. I've got the year right there. Was it 93? 93, 94. 93, 94. No, 92, 93, I think. But anyway, yeah. Somewhere, yeah in any case, somewhere. you've got all this documentary footage of you as a younger man. I mean, what did you make of that, seeing you in your 50s getting a chance to observe you in your 20s? Not <laughs> inside the 22 yards, by the way. There's loads of YouTube of you batting and all the rest of it and a number of uh, Sky programs, for example that would show you know your 185 in Johannesburg which we'll come to in the in the fullness of time don't worry uh, if you're listening to this and thinking we're going to brush over it we won't what did you make of seeing yourself as a younger man that, that's not that's not something that most people get a chance to do well it's probably slightly distressing <laughs> when you're now 53 <laughs> and you you look back and see a fresh-faced 22 year old and I'd had this footage for a long time, actually. I'd had it for seven or eight years, and I'd always wanted to do something with it. And I, I, we came to an arrangement with Dermot, and you know, he agreed that we could do something with it. And the footage is fantastic. But I, rem- I remember that as a very happy tour, funnily enough. We got absolutely trounced, 3-0. We got, they wiped the floor with us. But I remember it as a very happy tour because it was a really problematic tour. There was a... Uh, plane strike we had to go everywhere by train everybody had to muck in it it was a difficult tour but engendered tremendous spirit and looking back at all that footage I I was grateful that my memory wasn't playing tricks with me but Mm. that actually people do look as though they're getting on well and mucking in and making the best of what were difficult circumstances and there's some some lovely moments in there Chris Lewis got his maiden test 100 in, in Chennai, or it was still called Madras then. And there's the, the footage, Dermot Reeves, it's his handheld mm. camera, and he's in the dressing room. And as Chris Lewis comes in, this is one and only test 100, although he wasn't to know that then. But he gets down in his little corner of the dressing room and, and says a prayer of thanks. And you just see everybody respectfully move out of the way to give him distance and time to do that and then everybody comes in to congratulate him so there's lovely unseen footage lovely touching moments no sense that people are playing to the camera because all it was was just Dermot with a little thing and it wasn't particularly Mm. obtrusive so a very natural uh, environment and it was nice to see all that all that footage very different time India, a completely different country. An interesting tour because it was the first one that satellite television covered. I think the series was sold for about 600 grand to, uh, to TWI. And when you consider now what Indian television rights go mm. for, the IPL is probably going to go for about 6 billion the next time it's up for rights. But this was the start of the television revolution really the start of Durishan giving way to satellite television and everything that was to come you know through Sachin Tendulkar all the sponsorship and the kind of commercialization of the game 
that was the start of it. So it was fascinating to, to look back on it all. When you took over the captaincy, you had the 99 at Lords, but you hadn't made 100 in about three years, I think. And then you go to the Caribbean, you make 100 in Georgetown. I think almost more remarkably, you made one in Antigua after being in the field for 180 overs watching Brian Larabat. You still somehow managed to uh, be able to stand up and, and come out and make 100 in the second innings. But how significant was that tour in feeling like you can do this, you can be the captain and you can succeed personally? Yeah, I felt for, for me that was the tour where I really felt I could crack it as a test match opener and I'm captain of course by this stage and I've been in the side on and off a bit through injuries and loss of form being dropped once or twice I hadn't really I suppose established myself as a, as a decent test match opener until that tour the first test match of that tour was at Sabina Park and it was in the days when Sabina Park was a very, very quick pitch. It, it, the groundsman used to kind of spin roll it and you could see your reflection in the surface almost. It was like a shiny pitch and your studs wouldn't go in. It was like batting on an ice rink. So it was a rock hard pitch. And in the days when the Caribbean still had a local crowd turning up for test matches and Sabina Park was quite a, a tough, ferocious atmosphere and then Courtney Walsh bowled a, a spell that was just a lightning spell. And so that was really being put under the scanner as a visiting captain there. And as you say, then I got 100 in Georgetown and 100 in, in Antigua, but they were two much flatter pitches. Um, that opening game at Sabina was really the one where I thought, yeah, I can, I can handle this, I'm all right even though I, I only got 50 and 20 or something, but I, I kind of felt, yeah, I, I'm okay, I can handle it. And that sparked really probably two or three years of fairly consistent performances then. I, I, you know, I probably got a 1,000 runs in each of the following two or three years um, to really establish myself as a player. But it, it took some time and, you know, as I said, I'd been in the team in and out for four or five years then. So I'm mindful of when young players now like Hasib Hamid maybe in this series or Rory Burns, whatever. I'm mindful that it does take some time to find your feet at international cricket, or at least it takes most people a little bit of time. Even though I got a test hundred in my third test, I think, I still really didn't feel established until that West Indies tour, which is then probably 30 test matches into my career. And later in 1994, when you're leading the team at home against South Africa, you get embroiled in like a proper scandal, right? Like a, a live television scandal with the dirt in the pocket for Argo, which you've written about extensively and talked about a million times. So I don't plan to go through that again. Everybody knows that story. But I guess from uh, from your perspective, being in the middle of it all, probably 26, maybe 27 at a pinch and having the eyes of the cricketing world on you. I actually talked to Agus about it last year for the Calling the Shots documentary and he identifies it as one of the most important moments in his post-cricket career in having the guts to kind of line you up. And I know you've, you've you know, um, mended fences and talked about your relationship with, with him as well. But just your reflections on being in the middle of a proper full-blown scandal at that age and I guess the, the pressure that went hand in hand with that. Well, it was a very uncomfortable place to be. Um, I am, I suppose, naturally 
uh, quite shy, somebody who doesn't like to be on. I mean, you understand when you're playing professional sport or captain of England that you're going to be on the back pages of the newspaper. But I'm not somebody who particularly like being on the front page of the newspaper, <laughs> which is where I was for a, a couple of weeks. And that feeling of, you know, the eyes of, of the, the sporting world on you is not a particularly comfortable place to be. It was also a time when the nature of the media was very different uh, in England. I mean, no social media, which makes life very difficult now, I think, for, for young sportsmen. But the, the tabloid media was much more powerful and much mm. more aggressive in England than it, than it is now. And I, I didn't cope with it particularly well. I didn't particularly enjoy it. The story that I told at the start of, of, of this about Bumble coming to see me in Cartmel was exactly then. Um, and so people obviously were looking out for, for me, but I didn't cope particularly well. And it, it kind of had a knock-on effect. I mean, after that test match, Lancashire didn't have a game, which which was when I ended up in the Lake District. So, and they didn't have, usually had a county game before your next test match. But I got to Headingley for the next test against South Africa, having not had any cricket for a couple of weeks and somehow ground out a 99 and then went and was put immediately in front of the press conference where I didn't cover myself in glory, it must be said. <laughs> but I then, I probably, through immaturity or, you know, just being 26 or whatever it was, I struggled to, to cope with it as well as I perhaps might have done or should have done or probably would do now. It was the first time, you know, that that I'd been kind of, I felt that the eyes were on me. And I, I think it's a lesson just how quickly things can turn as well. And that's something that I've never forgotten. You, you can think you're all, all riding high and everything is going very well. And then, bing, one thing happens and you find yourself on the other side of it. So it was a, a good lesson in life, a good life lesson, I suppose. How did you try to steady yourself after that like when when did you feel that you'd got some equilibrium back well it took some time I, I mean I look back at that 99 at Headingley actually as a, quite a remarkable innings I mean it was a very unremarkable innings there, there weren't many <laughs> you know glorious shots if, if you had a look at the highlights reel which I've never done I can't imagine <laughs> that there were too many free-flowing shots but to play that innings under the kind of pressure that I felt under, whether that's real or imagined is is immaterial really, I felt that pressure and to play it against a pretty good South African attack having not had a bat for two weeks, I, I kind of look back and with some admiration at that 26 year old for, for being able to do that and I guess that's some sense that you've got a either a thick hide or a thick skin or some kind of inner sense of resilience or whatever it is that you probably need to have if you're going to be a test match opener and I think it, it was it was demonstrated there. You mentioned earlier when, when you first played for England that there was sort of a limited support network around you and well documented that, that Raymond Illingworth was instrumental in kind of sanctioning you after that incident but also it's a reminder that this is the days before central contracts and all that support structure that would otherwise be there now for a player going through something like that. I don't expect you to say that you'd lament the time you led, but at, at different intervals towards the end of your career, perhaps when NASA was in charge or when Michael thereafter and all the rest of it, that you thought, gee, it would have been a fraction easier had I had all of this around me with central contracts when I was doing the job just a few years earlier. 
Well, you can't you can't choose your time, can you? Either the time that you're playing or the time that you captain. So I, I don't think there's much value to be had in in regretting things that way or, or, or wishing things were different or second guessing yourself. I, I mean, I, I was very strong with the English cricket authorities that they had to bring in central contracts. And that really wasn't from a remuneration point of view. Um, it was simply that our fast bowlers kept getting injured and mm. worn down. We we were playing still, even in a test match summer of five or six tests, we hardly played any ODIs in those days, just three what were called Texaco trophy games in a summer. But you'd still be playing 17 or 18 county games. And our fast bowlers would be playing that, whether it was Darren Goff or Andrew Caddick or Angus Fraser. And they'd, they'd all get injured from time to time. Goff missed the Caribbean tour of 98 because he was bowling for Yorkshire at the end of the end of the season and of the domestic season. And he missed that tour, which could have been a defining difference between winning or losing that tour. Good fast bowlers are like gold dust, as everybody knows. And we weren't looking after our fast bowlers as well as we might have done. So the initial plea for central contracts was really just to, because I could see what other teams were doing. So South Africa, Australia had already moved down that road. And B, I could see the disadvantage for our for our own fast bowlers, which, which was critical. And then, of course, it developed much more fully than I imagined it might when they then start to contract, you know, 20 people as they do now. And, I mean, the sums are extraordinary. You know, England cricket is getting paid, you know, close to, if not more than seven-figure seven figure salaries would, would have been just inconceivable when we played. And I'm, I'm certainly not against that. I'm very happy that the players are doing well and happy that eventually English cricket came to it. I think my last year as an England cricketer was the very first year of central contracts, and that was 2001. I would look at your career as being defined by three rivalries. There's the West Indies, Australia and South Africa. Australia had a couple of really good series with the bat, um, but they were a kind of death star at the time and were, were pretty much unkillable. Uh, West Indies, like you were talking about in, in 94 and some of those really hostile spells. And then the South Africa head-to-head is remarkable. There's that 95 tour you're talking about where you made the 99. Then there's the visit to South Africa where you, you have the rear guard, the incredibly long, it was 647 minutes or whatever it was. And then the 98 visit from South Africa to England, which is one of the great test series but you also, you just stepped down from the captaincy at that point and then had one of your great test series as well. What do you make of those? I, I guess particularly the South Africa rivalry, what what was it that that brought out in you what it seemed to bring out in you? Well, you're right. First of all, I, I look back and I just seemed forever to have been playing against Australia, West Indies or South Africa. It is remarkable, really, and a reflection of how the game has changed. I think I played 100 and... 15 test matches I played one in India which is amazing wow. really you know if you these days everybody wants to go to India for, for all the obvious reasons it's, it's the epicenter of the game but back then we really didn't tour the subcontinent very much um, only one tour of India in, in the whole of my 12 year test career of which I only played in one game so you're right it was a constant diet of fast bowlers and Shane Warne <laughs> from uh, Australia, West Indies and, and South Africa and five test match series at that you know every one of those series was a five test match series and people will tell you that five test match series against good bowling attacks is really the the, the, the measure 
or the tough ask of a, of a test match opener or test match batsman. And they had good attacks. So the Austra- early Australian attack was uh, McDermott and Bruce Reed, and then it went to McGrath and Gillespie. And I had horrendous problems against Glenn McGrath, which no doubt you'll want me to touch on later. I, had, I got out to Walsh and Ambrose a lot, but scored my share of runs against them. And then Pollock and Donald, who again had great battles with and, and scored what I felt was my share of runs as, as an opener against them. And, you know, had a couple of epic battles against Alan Donald, one in Johannesburg that you mentioned, and then the one at Trent Bridge in 1998, which I guess is, you know, is, is widely remembered. It was a Sunday evening on the BBC, big audience, match on the line. Uh, had we lost that game, that was the series done. And in the end, we went on to win the series 2-1 and a, an epic 50-minute passage of play, really, of which there have been a few down the years, I suppose. Shane Watson and Wahab Riaz at Adelaide in the 2015 World Cup, Michael Clark and Mornay Morkel. You can think of probably, you know, three or four episodes of which, of which that was one. Living over in the UK, as I have for however long now, the 98 South Africa series would be the one that gets replayed the most in terms of the archives and all the rest of it. There's this affection for it. And, of course, your innings in 95 in Johannesburg would be the one I suppose that's most loved in modern times, like when people think of most most treasured England innings in modern time, they, they point at that. So much so that just a couple of days ago on our SEM broadcast, I mean, we were talking about it again, weren't we? I mean, this is something that will follow you around for the rest of your life in a good way. How does that feel? Because not all cricketers have that one innings, or in your case, a couple, that people will always pull out of the pull out of the drawer and say, let's have a conversation around that. Obviously, you'd look back with a, a, a great sense of pride, but also, I mean, I suppose you know the story from from head to toe, but just the idea that so many people out there who love the game, and cricket's not, as much as we would love it to be, it's not anywhere near as big as cricket is here compared to the football codes. So that the cricket fans almost have this kinship, don't they? Like, we, you know, oh, you like cricket as well, do you? Well, you can be my friend type thing. <laughs> and, and, and I'd imagine there'd be all these cricket fans of a certain age who, would, who really would truly treasure the 185 knot. Yeah, and because of the type of innings that it was, a, a backs to the wall, rear guard, um, nose to the grindstone innings, as you say, as Joss Butler was playing like Jeff Boycott the other day, we were referencing one or two of of those other stands, like the Watson-Bailey stand famously yeah. at 53 at Lords. So there are episodes in English cricket that have gone down in, in folklore or you know, are grabbed onto by by contemporary fans and, and, and referenced. And I think, you know, that Johannesburg innings is one. And I'm very happy to have played it, very happy to be, to be remembered for that in a way. I mean, I do look back now when I occasionally see the footage if it's a rainy day and Sky put on the footage. I look back and think it feels like a slight out of body experience. I kind of doesn't. When I look at the telly, I don't think was that really me batting there because you know being so old now, 53, and you know pretty decrepit, you can't can't really imagine going out with 30,000 people banging on those tins at the side of the ground making a tremendous din and and Donald Bowling at 95 miles an hour so it feels a slightly out of body experience a slightly different person doing it but I'm very happy I did it the the South Africa 98 series like I said just came just after you'd given up the captaincy and then you had a few more years in the team did you feel liberated by that and not having to do that job anymore 
I was ready to finish when I finished. In fact, I should have finished one tour earlier. After the defeat in the Ashes of 97, I was done for, really. Both physically very tired, mentally a bit worn down. Um, and in fact, I told I told uh, the ECB I was going to jack it in at the end of that series and kind of slightly got persuaded against my better judgment to do one more tour. Um, so yes, I, I was ready to finish, and I, I just happened to be in a very, very bad run of form at the start of that '98 summer, and somehow pulled it out of the bag in the first Test match at Edgebaston against South Africa when I got 100, which then allowed me to have two or three more years in the team. And I stepped back from it really. I, I mean, I, NASA and then Alec initially, NASA, and I just said, look, I'm here to help if you need me, but I'm certainly not going to get in the way. I'll do my job for you as best I can at, at the top of the order. Um, and thoroughly enjoyed the last two or three, three years playing under Alec and NASA and tried to do my bit to help out. Uh, but I was ready to finish. I, I found it a pretty grueling four-year experience. I mean, the team wasn't winning particularly. It, it was a tough old time. Mm. There wasn't that support staff, you know, support around you that, that would be there now to just take a little burden off you. So, And I'm probably the type of person who doesn't wear it lightly in any case. So for all those kind of reasons, I mean, I gave it my all and gave it my best, but I was ready to finish when I finished. There's a nice line in a profile written about you when you were still playing that you were the Neil Kinnock uh, to NASA's Tony Blair in terms of the success that <laughs> he was able to achieve due to the foundation that you laid. That's kind of the, how the how the comparison goes in in the piece. And you, you can kind of see that, can't you? There's some green shoots towards the end of your captaincy and then Nas takes over and then you're part of what is a really fun ride, I suppose. I recall distinctly that 99-2000 Tour of South Africa doesn't go that well in terms of the overall result, but you can kind of see where it's going. Then into 2000, some success overseas, uh, the team in Pakistan, Sri Lanka and, and so on. And it doesn't go well in 2001, but that's almost an aberration. By that point, Nas has got the team ticking over central contracts. They've put the World Cup 99 disaster behind them and they're trending towards something special and we of course know that ends up being the 2005 Ashes series under under Michael who takes over when when NASA's finished but can you kind of see that now that there were those building blocks that that you were putting in place that NASA was able to build on subsequently and then you could all take some significant pride in what happened years later in 2005 which was almost the end of a cycle Yes, I mean, I'd like to see it like that. Whether that's an accurate uh, <laughs> reflection and whether others would see it like that, I don't know. Um, so I'd like to th think that there was, you know, I had some kind of small hand in it, but that's for others to judge. I mean, NASA was a terrific captain. Uh, Duncan Fletcher came in, was a terrific England coach. Uh, one of the best two, I think, that we've had with Andy Flower as well. And then Central Contracts came in in 2001. So a combination of factors meant that the team was in the end road a bit higher than it had been doing, albeit still not able to get over over that ashes, that that the stumbling block of the ashes. So we, we got still got beat heavily in 2001 and 2002-3 just after I finished. But that was a very great Australian team, a really powerhouse Australian team. But yeah, definitely towards the end of my time there as a player, after I'd given up as captain the winter series in Pakistan and Sri Lanka in 2001, you got a sense that things were moving forward. And I don't, I don't, I can't really take much credit. You know, NASA was a, an absolutely terrific captain and deserves deserves to take the majority of the credit. And I think he really 
lay the foundations for what was to come with Michael. Um, NASA was a particular fit for a particular time and his kind of cussedness and toughness was required then. And then what was needed after that was almost the liberation that Michael allowed the team to play with a bit more flair and a bit more freedom. And they were both the right fit for the right time. And that ended up obviously in that magnificent series of 2005, which I, I was long gone as a player by then, but was very privileged to call uh, with Channel 4. I mean, that's the greatest test series I've ever seen. And I can't imagine I'll see one better. As a post-career reflection, just two things here. One, in Christchurch, you make a big ton in a big chase, 300 plus, and win. The first innings, you were 94 not out, having carried your bat and got stranded. And then in the South Africa chase, you're 98 not out when you win the match <laughs> in 98. Alex Stewart's got 45 not out. Did either of them irritate you afterwards, looking back, where nearly had twin tons and nearly had the ton in the chase? Should, shouldn't Alec have got 40 not out and left a few more? Both my fault. I was farting about, you know, just couldn't hit the ball off the square, getting worse, mistiming the ball worse the longer the innings was going on. I don't know what it is. It's maybe the closer you get to the finishing line, the more tense mm -hmm. you feel because you desperately want to be there at the end to do it. But really, it was my fault. I had so much time and opportunity to get both the, the hundreds <laughs> that you're talking about. I, I can have no complaints at all. In fact, Stewie said to me in that game at Trent Bridge, he said, do you want the hundred? And I was just crudding it so badly. I said, no, just get it over with. and We can walk <laughs> off here and go and celebrate. When you finish up as a player in, in 2001, even though you're only 33, I mean, I guess, you, as you've explained, it's, it's the right time because your body was never going to permit you to play a long career deep into your 30s. But you don't take long before you're right opening up your autobiography, your reflections on your time in the game. Again, not long before your your writing about the game prolifically, broadcasting initially with Channel 4 and then into Sky Cricket. I mean, that transition seems seamless for you. How do you look back on that period of time when you'd gone from being England opening batsman to very much uh, a, a serious voice on the game in England and around the world? It was not something I planned at all. I've always been terrible at planning a roadmap of, of how the how my career should go if you if you, if you want to refer it to, like that I just I've tried to do whatever I'm doing whatever I'm doing I've tried to do it as well as I can at the time and hope that somehow things take care of themselves I have I've never been particularly ambitious I've never been particularly forward thinking or forward planning like that so I, I took a few months off when I retired, um, wrote the book just because I thought, well, I need something to do. <laughs> Might as well try and do it. Um, thoroughly enjoyed that. Worked for Channel 4 in the summers, but didn't do much broadcasting in the winters at that stage. I'd actually been writing a column in the Sunday Telegraph from about 1993 onwards. So I had done some cricket journalism whilst I was playing. I was always slightly attracted to doing some writing and my in-laws in Guyana had a newspaper that, that I was quite interested in in that world uh, of newspapers and journalism and, and trying to work out how it went um, and, and then it just kind of came together really uh, I can't explain it any other way than that as I say it certainly wasn't planned it was not 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 what I anticipated doing I rather fell into it and, and found I could do it okay 
you're one of the few players turned pundits who actually writes. You know, you 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 write your own pieces. You write beautifully. Was that important? to you to I guess the fact that you still do it is interesting to me that you're you're so senior in tv commentary you don't need to be writing columns in the times you don't need to be being a journalist but you are still that as well you're not just a talking head on tv no I find that it um I find it keeps you sharp actually um as you know writing is is quite hard there are days when you open the laptop and you're not quite sure what to write and it's time consuming. But I find that it keeps you sharp because you have to stay across things. You, you have to, you know, you go to the press conferences, you listen to what the players are saying. You have to know a little bit about the history of the game because that will inform what you're writing about the present and maybe give you some nice intros, you know, some anecdotes <laughs> that might give you some nice intros. So I find it keeps you sharp. It, it uh, keeps you knowledgeable. You get a wide, a broad view of the game. So I find that it helps my broadcasting. I also find the broadcasting helps the writing because throughout the day you're watching very intently. You're kind of forming thoughts in your head as you go along. So I find the two help each other. And I, I always get a bit, I always get a bit miffed when people say to me, "Do you really write your own stuff?" And you know, I kind of, well, <laughs> yes, I do. Um, <laughs> And I I still enjoy it. I mean, as you know, there are days when you you sit there and think, God, what am I going to write today? Mm. But if you find a nice piece or a nice story or a nice turn of phrase, these things stay a bit longer. So I enjoy both sides of it. I enjoy the broadcasting immensely. And I still enjoy enjoy the writing as well. It's interesting. You've been a, a writer, broadcaster longer than you've been a professional cricketer. In fact, quite a bit longer when you think of it. Uh, you finishing up at 33 and now being 53. And I suppose the space you're afforded as well in that job at the Times, I mean, that, that, that beautiful series of pieces you wrote about photography earlier this year, or going back a little bit earlier, the effect you were able to have um, in the MCC pavilion about professionals who died in the war and weren't recognised next to the amateurs uh, in the pavilion there, which I know was a you know, kind of a quite important piece that you wrote and had more time to, to give it than you, than you might be if you didn't have that daily job and that opportunity to, to write every day. I also enjoy that how you've discussed how you were a bit of a you know Captain Grumpy style figure with the press as a player, but you've over time understood more that everyone's got a job to do, everyone's doing the best they can do and there's space for that and that reflects the way you talk about the Almost game. Almost everyone. Almost everyone. Almost everyone. That's true. That's true. Uh, in terms of uh, how you found all this, I, I'm I'm fascinated by the idea that there is journalism in the family, on the other side of your family, with the in-laws and um, and the story that that takes you through Guyana and your father-in-law having been. Would you describe him as like a dissident journalist or something like that when Guyana um, <laughs> earned their independence in 1971 and he starts a newspaper and he really takes to authority uh, with that and, until his passing? But were you inspired as much by that as you were what you saw on the cricket field to actually do this as a day job um i think i just if you, if you grow up in england where democracy is a given sometimes you take all these things for granted and that was a country where uh, democracy wasn't a given and where the establishment of a of a free and fair press played its part in in a young and nascent democracy so i kind of came to understand the importance of it in a more fundamental way than mm. obviously just 
what we do, which is writing on the back pages about sport, which which can be fairly irrelevant from time to time. Mm-hmm. So I understood from that that it that it had a more significant role in some countries, but I wouldn't overplay it. I mean, you know, they, they, it was a fantastic thing that they did setting up the newspaper, but nothing to do with me. Um, but I, yes, I got that interest interest in journalism and journalists, and I've always enjoyed the company. Uh, of journalists. I mean, I did have, as you as you mentioned, I I did have a bad reputation as England captain for being grumpy in press conferences, and I certainly was from time to time. I think most individual journalists that dealt with me would say I was pretty helpful in a one-on-one basis, uh, but not necessarily in that big kind of slightly forbidding press <laughs> conference atmosphere. But I've thoroughly enjoyed um, the the last few years at the, the Times, as you say, that I, I get scope to really write about what I want to write about. And I find that the key thing is just to stay curious and stay interested. Um, It's easy when you are 20 years out of the game just to stop being curious and to stop learning about the game and to stop being interested. But I find I am interested still about the young lads who come into the game and their background and and who they are. And, And I think if you keep that curiosity and interest, And I still, come Boxing Day, I'll walk across that bridge to the MCC and genuinely look forward to the day's cricket. I will sit there and be interested in it and look forward to it and want to watch it. And I think that really is the key to, to keep doing what we're doing. I think once you lose that interest that curiosity, that love of it, it comes very quickly mm. through in either your writing or your broadcasting. And touch wood, and, you know, I, I still have that interest and curiosity, so I, I still en- enjoy watching all cricket, really, but uh, especially good test cricket. Curiosity and interest, it's like you're such a presence in cricket on the broadcast, in the papers and all the rest of it, but you strike me as someone who has a lot of curiosity and interest in a much broader scope of things outside the game. Do you do you park cricket and leave it there and then go off and have another life outside it? Um, yes and no. I mean, as you know, these days, cricket is all-consuming, isn't it? The, all the time. Uh, particularly if you cover England, who are never not on the road somewhere. <laughs> There's always yeah. the English summer for six months, and then they're always touring in, in the winter. So you do find yourself drawn into it and sucked into it. And if you're doing the kind of job that we do, you have to stay on top of it. So there's that side of it. But you're right. I mean, you know, I love reading and film and, you know, got children and all, all the usual things that people have. And you try and have a have a life away from that. But I have to say that cricket has rather sucked me in more than I thought it would do when I finished playing, partly just because of, of how the schedules have become all consuming, much more so than when I played. And of course, that's that's partly my choice as well. So a bit of both, I would say. Do you need to guard that time then? Do you need to make sure you do firewall sometime that's not cricket? I think so. Just um, in order to keep yourself reasonably fresh when you do come back to cricket. If that's all you're doing, I mean, I've been lucky that I've been able to write about other stuff in the paper, whether it occasional politics or, or whatever. And that's quite nice to have that opportunity to do other stuff. And I thoroughly enjoy at Sky when, even though the documentaries are often about cricket that we make, I thoroughly enjoy 
that slightly more creative side of it, whether it's doing something on Michael Holding in Jamaica or Imran Khan in Pakistan or the spin wash that we did this year. Those are fun projects to do as well. And they're often cricket based, but it's not the kind of the, the, the daily grind that, that we have, if you like. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm thoroughly en- I still thoroughly enjoy all of it, really. That relentless nature that you talk of with the modern game. I mean, your boy Josh is walking into that now. And I know he's been able to balance it off by being a, a professional at the same time as being a full-time student. And not everyone's able to do that, of course, but he, he has been permitted that, that freedom and that flexibility. What's been your advice to him about how he might safeguard his own mind and, and retain that own curiosity and not only being on that solo track, which I think can be a bit of a handbrake for some cricketers when they come through the system and yeah, they're on the conveyor no. belt and that's kind of the only thing they have space for? I think fewer and fewer p- cricketers go to university for all kinds of reasons. The, 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 if you become a full-time pro now, probably the salary is of a such that it's more attractive than it was. But I, I encouraged him to go, not that he'll necessarily listen to me, but I kind of encouraged him to go uh, to uni and, and just try and get a degree at the same time. I don't think it's a bad thing being away from home, learning, growing up. And if you can, if you can mix and match the two, a bit of education and a, and a bit of sport, that's good. I mean, you're only a sportsman for a short period of time in the whole span of your life, which might be touch wood 80 or 90 years mm. or something, you're a sportsman for maybe 15 of them. Mm. So you have to think about other aspects to your life. And if you've got something there uh, in your background, a, a qualification or whatever, I, 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 I still don't think that's a bad thing. In terms of him, I, I have really stayed out of the way, to be honest, other than shoving a bat in his hand when he was about three <laughs> and being there to throw a million balls at him at Radlett Cricket Club, which is where you've commentated from, Colo, many times. <laughs> I have I have generally stayed out of the way. I'm a very light touch uh, parent. I just encouraged him to to hit the ball and to find a natural way. And certainly in the last two or three years, as he's got close to and now onto the Middlesex staff, I, I stay out of the way. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed seeing his first class debut last year. I made sure I turned up for that. But, I mean, I'm a bad watcher. Parenting in cricket is particularly hard, and it's a particularly hard place if you're a young opening batsman, uh, as Josh is these days. And I certainly hope in the next couple of years, Colo, he gives you a bit more to commentate on than he did this year when his appearances were pretty brief for Middlesex. Uh, But fingers crossed on that front. I think there's a fairly strong understanding that we are going to be seeing a lot of him. Uh, It's frightening how similar he is to you. I know he jokes that he's never watched you bat and all the rest of it. but I mean, you must see it yourself. It is, it is slightly eerie watching him, his mannerisms. I mean, you must be able to pick up on that, it, having watched yourself back and so on. It, 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 it's quite odd. He will have never really watched me bat. But when he's standing at the non-striker's end, he has a certain way of standing that is very similar to, <laughs> to, to how, how I stood. And, I, you know, genes, whatever, genes, just nature, nurture, whatever, who knows. But, yeah, anyway, we'll see how he goes. He's, he's got a good attitude and he's going to give it a good go, I think. One of the obstacles that, that I bump up against with cricket is, is loving the game but also feeling alienated 
by in men's cricket by the the sort of macho culture aspect of it there's sort of unimaginativeness in what people are, what men are supposed to do and and not supposed to do and all the rest of it and I mean you don't strike me as someone who subscribes to that sort of culture but looking back on it now I guess I'm, I'm wondering what your perspective on that is and, and I guess also sending your son into that you know he's starting out and, and, and going into that world as well I mean, as I say, I I didn't uh, particularly push him that way or particularly encourage him. But I, uh, in the sense that he's having a go and and involved in the game, I'm absolutely delighted. I think it's a fantastic game uh, for a young man or woman to uh, be involved in. I'm very sorry that my daughter shows no interest in it. I can't (laughs) persuade her to get interested in the game at all. But I think it's a fantastic game for travel and friendship, comradeship, um, meeting people from different countries, different walks of life. It's been one of the the great joys of my life, really, and and one of the great uh, one another piece of great good fortune. I, I feel I've grown up and developed as a person because of partly because of the game i mean there's lots of influences on your game obviously on yourself obviously parenting and all that kind of thing but cricket has had a fundamental influence on my life meeting people like tony Kozier in barbados somebody that you would never meet before and somebody who's just come from a completely different background and way of life and to develop friendships and relationships with people like that and then in the subcontinent, it's just been one of the great joys of my life and I think has contributed to making me the person I am and I'm very grateful for that involvement in the game. Well, as you say, it is a magnificent game, uh, one that might have contributed to making you who you are, but you've played a massive hand in, in shaping what the game is today as well. Uh, thank you for being such a, a supportive colleague uh, over the years in, in what we do and for being such a fabulous guest today. Merry Christmas. Pleasure, boys, and Merry Christmas to you as well. Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw and you're listening to the Final Word podcast. Final Word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Thanks again to Michael Atherton for, uh, well, as we said at the end end of the interview, really, being a great supporter of the stuff that we do uh, and in turn giving us loads of time uh, to kind of go through his career. I kind of got the feeling halfway through, Jeff, that if we wanted to, we could have had a four or five hour chat with him. Uh, It would have been, uh, we we would have been, it it wouldn't have lost pace. It's just, uh, it's just that he's done so much in the game and continues to contribute so much to it as a reporter a writer a journalist and a and a broadcaster that it's really a lifelong commitment uh, that he's given cricket and contributed so much to it the the perfect christmas guest you could you could imagine the blazing logs by the fireside if you're in the cold part of the world or sitting back under a shady tree if you're down in the warmer climbs where we are at the moment so uh, thanks a lot to michael atherton for joining the ranks of guests on the final word can i say one more thing that i neglected to get out in the interview because we were just kind of moving along quite quickly at the time but i thought you would absolutely love jeff and something that i never knew before i know about sort of Mike's family background in Guyana through his wife and his wife's family, which we touched on a little bit. But how's this for a perfect final word, little factoid to finish off? His, I suppose you'd call him grandfather-in-law, Frank De Carey's, uh, yep. played three test matches for the West Indies in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And the, the final 
of those was one we've talked about time and time and time again. It's the Jamaica Test match of 1930 where, where Andy Sandham makes the first triple hundred in Test cricket and Wilfred uh, Rhodes' yes. final test. So Frank De Carey's and Wilfred Rhodes played their final Test matches uh, in the same match at, at Jamaica in, in 1930, which I thought long-time listeners to the show would find quite interesting uh, given it's come up on Storytime many, on many occasions over the last 18 months or so. The, the links are always there. If you want to find them, uh, one bit in the chain connects to something else in the chain. And, yeah, it's quite uh, touching that we're, we're not that far away from those times that, that can seem like we're looking back at, at something so so far in in the distant past and it is nearly 100 years ago now but there's always a link there's always a connection so we're quite fortunate to find those I know it's a long way away Jeff but in 20 in April 2030 we must visit the West Indies. I know we made a lot of promises about where we might take the final word. Uh, we're going to be in Pakistan in March, by the way. I probably should have spent more time talking about this off the front of the show, but I think we're about as close to confirmed as we can be to visiting Pakistan mm-hmm. for the Australian Test matches in throughout the, the course of March uh, 2022. So uh, the Dara to Dream tour will take place in, in some way. I'm not quite sure how we can do it uh, with travel restrictions and so on, but we, we might dig more into that over the week ahead when we're at the Melbourne Cricket Ground for Boxing Day and um, have a bit more a bit more to tell you next week when we put a full stop on 2021 uh, as far as the weekly show is concerned. Maybe we put a full stop on this show today as well at this point. Uh, thank you to uh, Brick Lane. Thank you to Wisdom Cricket Monthly. If you want to get involved in Brick Lane, as we talked about in the middle of the show, uh, jump on their website and pop in offer code MARSH182 to get yourself 15% off. Wisdom Cricket Monthly, uh, get yourself a subscription at bit.ly forward slash WCMTFW you get six editions for 10 quid or 15 bucks wonderful value there thank you to everybody who supports what we do on Patreon patreon.com forward slash the final word uh, the bad producer production label that we're on Jay Mueller Astrid Edwards our editor Dave Collins uh, we love yous all uh, and last but not least everybody who's listened to us throughout the course of 2022 and have been listening to the Ashes Dailies uh, in the last couple of weeks uh, we love the feedback uh, it's really cool when we're making shows day in day out and there's that energy around our social media feeds with people uh, having their two cents on whatever it is that we've said uh, and can't wait to do it all again on boxing day we will we will do it all on boxing day Uh, between now and then if you're listening to this in a timely manner it will be christmas Uh, warmest wishes to all of you and yours Uh, stay safe try to be nice to each other and have a wonderful time Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. Finalwordcricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at bricklanebrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.